1: Blog Talk Radio.
2: Please, but it must have been the wrong time
1: Good evening, and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Conahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, who are both pleased that number six LSU and Arkansas won their respective first games of the season. Next Saturday, LSU plays number nine Texas, and Arkansas plays Ole Miss. Thank you for joining us for episode 28. Tonight, Michael and I will talk about the statutes governing DNA testing in the federal system, Arkansas, Louisiana, California, New York, and Texas. We'll also talk about cases in which DNA testing requests have been denied by the trial court and affirmed at the appellate level. Finally, we'll try to clear up some of the misconceptions held by the public regarding the process for seeking DNA testing, and why some defendants in high-profile cases are not granted testing in state court. Finally, we'll talk about the civil rights claims filed by state prisoners in federal court in an effort to get DNA testing otherwise denied in state court. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael.
0: Good evening, Lisa. Yeah, definitely uh, thrilled about the Arkansas win over the weekend, but uh, I'm pretty sure you alls were more uh, clear and convincing, pun intended, than ours. Uh, yeah,
1: some uh, we like 55 to, 50 five to 3. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, ours, lost high ours was a team in Oregon. <laughs>
1: Uh well we were playing uh I think it was South Georgia.
0: Uh yeah, you guys are playing somebody you should have whooped, but I uh, I'll tell you, you know, we you're playing number nine Texas this uh week and I'm just saying you're both our rivals, so like who do I root for? Like, do I just hope <laughs> both of you a <laughs> plane crashes into the field and takes everybody out? Like
1: Oh dear. Knock
0: on wood. Terrible joke, you're yeah. considering that next week. The time yeah. of year
1: we're approaching, yeah. So
2: me.
1: Yeah. But I I I'm you know, crossing my fingers, hopefully LSU will do well.
0: Oh, I'm sure they will. Y'all got a heck of a quarterback yeah. out there, so I'd be I'd
1: be yeah. surprised to see if they do well. Yep. All right, well, let's Uh, get on with the show. We do have one new development. Um, The uh, Leon Jacob, the failed doctor in Houston, who tried to hire a hitman to kill his ex-girlfriend and his current girlfriend's ex-husband, His conviction has been affirmed by the 14th Court of Appeals in Texas. Um, His attorneys will likely file a petition for discretionary review with the Court of Criminal Appeals, but that is unlikely to be granted.
0: Hey, Lisa, I have an honest question. Yes. So let's say, short of life in prison and the death penalty, right? Take those two off the table. If you've just got one of the lesser sentences, say like 20 years or something like that, not even for murder, but just a crime you committed, is a lot of your time served just going to be like taken up with you appealing your process or your appeal in your sentence?
1: Well, that... that
0: go down
1: that has been known to happen uh, Jacob is serving life in prison and he mm-hmm. won't be eligible for parole he'll be eligible in 30 something years right so um, but yeah it it can be if you continue you know I've said it before Had Dahlia DiPolito entered a guilty plea in 2009, she likely would have been sentenced to four years. She could have likely gotten some of that suspended and, and never really served much prison time, if any. And she would have been done by 2015. She would have had a felony on her record, but uh-huh. she she would have been free to live her life however she wanted. And considering the fact that she was an escort anyway, it's really the felony conviction is really not going to hurt her job prospects.
0: Right. I think in that um, to work, I'm pretty sure it's bad if you don't have a felony. <laughs>
1: Well, no, if you don't have a felony, it means you're good enough that you've never gotten caught. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, yeah, I think I've seen some, and I've even seen some uh, in Texas where the sentence was finished, and they had been released, and so the Court of Criminal Appeals said, well, it's moot now.
0: Oh, and okay. this is any... Any
1: post-conviction claims?
0: I got one to ask you about. So we're always talking about, you know, the fairness of the judicial system, et cetera. Et cetera. I do have to uh-huh. ask you, I know you probably saw the viral uh, news story over the week, last week, about the guy who I believe he stole like $50 worth of something out of the store and served, what was it, like 50-some odd years. Uh...
1: What's your thoughts on that? Uh, 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 I did not see it, but you know theft is wrong whether you steal steal five dollars or five thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars the the sentence well i you know i i like I said, I did not see that story. I don't know what state it came out of, basically mm-hmm. when. In most states, um, the crime and the degree are have min- ma- minimum and mandatory sentencing. Did he get mandatory sentence? Because he's done this. He's stolen before, and he's gotten mm-hmm. guilty pleas and no time served. You know, what are the underlying circumstances? ...of this guy's history.
2: Right. I'm going to try to... find I mean,
1: theft theft is a serious crime regardless. You know, and how did he do it? Did he steal somebody's identity?
0: Sir, 36 years in prison for stealing $50. Uh, Habitual Felony Offender Act in 1984... Prior offenses were not subject to that because they were fired in 1984. It's under. It's in Alabama. Okay. Hold on. Let me uh, – my computer's acting stupid now. An Alabama man who spent 50 – or excuse me, spent 36 years for stealing $50.75 from a bakery he will soon be a free man. Uh, David Carpenter said on Wednesday he was sorry and he's wrong. Gennard, now 58, was convicted of first-degree robbery in connection with the 1983 theft at Highland Bakery and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole under Alabama's habitual felony of finger act. Four years earlier, okay. he was charged with murder.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Stop right there. Hang on. Okay. Mm-hmm. He robbed a bakery. To me, robbery implies he used threat of force, threat of harm to another person in the bakery Uh to obtain that $50.75. And that he either had a weapon or he made them believe that he had a weapon. That's robbery. That's not. He didn't. You know, somebody didn't leave the counter unattended, and he grabbed $50.75 out the uh, till and walked away. He committed a robbery. Right. There was a victim in that case right. who was traumatized. I mean, my mother was almost robbed and kidnapped. Luckily, she was right outside a restaurant where police hung out and there were marked patrol cars in the parking lot and one of them noticed her stalling the guy and the cops came out and intervened and prevented something horrible from happening. Right. Okay. The guy didn't get anything, but he still deserves life in prison. Because he still traumatized my mother Even though nothing happened She was traumatized For years
0: So I'm not trying to make a light of it Right I I want to start by saying that But Life in prison It seems like it should be Basically right underneath Death penalty right So yet again, is that not reserved for something like murder or something where somebody physically uh, but again,
1: Okay, Again, Michael, you're focusing on the, the net result to the criminal of uh-huh. their crime. What makes it a serious crime is that he robbed a person to obtain that fifty dollars and seventy five cents, he either had a weapon, showed him a weapon, threatened him with a weapon okay, and said, okay. "Give me the money or I kill you
2: true, true,
0: well, wait, I thought there were different levels of robbery too, like uh
1: well, there's aggra- there's aggravated, there's, but it depends on the state.
0: Right. I was about to say, because, I mean, isn't there such thing as robbery? Doesn't some states consider robbery just taking somebody's money, too?
1: In most I know statutes that I have seen, burglary, well, I, it's simple robbery can be you know, or, or larceny can be grabbing somebody's uh-huh. wallet and running away, grabbing right. the phone out of somebody's hand and running away. Mm. But like I said, robbery. I'm I'm looking this guy up on legal research tool. Okay, let me to see. Uh, okay.
0: Alvin A. L. V. I. N. Kenneth. I know. Is, I've got his name. I know.
1: A-R- I know his okay. name. I know his name. Boo. Boo. I know his name And I'm going to tell you Okay, Kennard versus State
2: 1985
1: Okay Okay Alvin Kennard, this is the indictment Alvin Kennard did, in the course of committing a theft of $50.75 in lawful money of the United States of America, property of Howard Hanna, DBA Highland Bakery, use force against the person of Brazzy Beroy with the intent to overcome her physical resistance or physical power of resistance, while the said Alvin Kennard was armed with a deadly weapon. To wit, a knife. Okay. This was a robbery in the first degree, class A felony, punishable by imprisonment for life or not more than 99 years or less than 10 years.
0: Okay, so now it makes a little bit more sense. I, The way the stories are, of course, written, it makes it seem like he was only sentenced to that because… … of the Habitual Offenders Act, which it later goes on to say that his two habitual offenses were like uh, petty petty BS, like, hey, I just pulled a wallet Yeah, out but
1: again, Habitual Offender Act, he testified and admitted that he'd previously been convicted of three felonies.
0: <sighs> oh, okay, so there's different levels of felony, correct?
1: There are different levels of felony, but, I mean, you know, it doesn't – and that's the thing. Again, you know, that's the problem with the court of public opinion. They're making it look like this poor little guy was victimized by the system, but the victim in his case was Brassy Baroy, who had a man with a knife take $50.75 from her – while she was at work at a bakery.
0: Right, right. And I apologize to, you know, anybody that may feel the other way about this or what have you. I'll obviously, you know, you, that's why I asked you because I'm sure I knew you would do something like that where you'd educate me on what the laughing, But, you know, it's one of those situations where that it said that apparently he hadn't previously been convicted of a Class A felony, which I assume is like the most badass of badass felonies.
1: I guess it I'm that. not sure how Alabama I'm not sure of the rankings in Alabama, but um but uh-huh. he had three prior felonies. It doesn't matter if they're class right. A, class B, class C. Felonies are serious crimes. And the crime he committed well, was a class A felony.
0: Okay. Basically, he's a bad dude. No matter what, he's a bad dude.
1: And, you know, more likely than not, sorry to say it, he's probably not going to be out very long because he's going to commit another crime.
0: You think so? Yeah. And I'm literally asking just because, like, damn, 36 years would probably make me get, make me turn my damn life around. I'd be too damn old after thirty six years in prison to be <laughs>
1: trying to commit crimes. You know, I I just like I said, the net result that you're a poor criminal and you hit a place when there's no money in the cash register and you only get a few bucks, it's still theft. It's still robbery. He traumatized what? that woman and. There were other witnesses in the bakery present at the time this went down who witnessed mm-hmm. it all.
0: And I'm sure they were traumatized to a certain level as well.
1: So, okay. You know, like I said, it, it
2: it was it
1: what he the crime he committed was a serious crime and deserved 36 years in prison at least.
0: Well, and see what, you know, we talked about the court of public opinion on that. The court of public opinion on my timeline was saying, you know, this is what's wrong with the uh, justice system. You know, the uh, certain sentences you can get, you know, 20 years for murder in certain sentences, but this dude's going to get 36 years for freaking stealing $50.75. You know what I'm saying? That's where people yeah. were going with
1: that. Right. But, you know, the reality is, according to this this opinion, Miss Barrow testified that the perpetrator nearest her held a knife on her, slightly cut uh-huh. her throat, threatened to kill her and pushed her to the floor.
0: Damn, he cut her throat too?
1: Slightly cut her throat. <laughs>
0: But yeah, for real. Like, and it's so, crazy to me how people don't research this stuff and they just go off the story. Because, I mean, part uh-huh. of the part of the uh, part of the you know story with this too was people were saying, "Oh, the poor man was just eighteen, and now look, he's like fifty-six now, just now getting out of jail, never had a chance in life." Now I see why.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, and he got up on the stand he tried to testify that um uh I guess that he he didn't do it mhm and uh, so now it may- he he was found with the knife on him, although he claimed that his accomplice in the robbery gave. Pulled the knife out and laid it on the seat in the police car, and that he put the knife in his shoe, and that's how he got found with the knife, and that the police uh, mistreated him and abused him at the station. Um, oh, but again, you know that's sure that. that's the story. But you know the believe it or not, um, you know there is a an important function served by criminal courts and prison. And it's protecting people from individuals who are going to take weapons and rob them and kill them, threaten to kill them, traumatize them.
2: Yeah, it makes more sense now
0: that you've explained it to me. See, when I just read it, I was all hot, and I'm like, oh my god, I cannot believe this would happen. (laughs) And look at that. It took you five minutes to take me off my high horse.
1: uh Uh-huh. Yeah, knocked you right down on your ass, didn't I? Yeah, you did. So, well, I knew there was something up the minute I saw the word robbery in the story. Because to me, that implies... Not that he broke in while nobody was there and took money out of a desk drawer or the till or whatever, but that he took that money from an employee of the bakery. Right. And, you know, that he did while armed with a knife, while holding that knife to the employee, slightly cutting her. And shoving her to the floor.
0: Good point. And
2: Lisa wins (laughs) again. Lisa, I think you're undefeated in our debate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it's it's uh, that's a common thing, and DNA testing. Similar articles out there about people seeking DNA testing post conviction, and the articles give the you know give the appearance of quote unquote reasonable doubt um, that there are questions that should be answered that weren't answered at trial, um, and that you know that the DNA could definitively answer those questions, but the mean state. Or the DA is opposing it, is fighting it, is preventing it from happening just because they don't want to admit that they're wrong, and that could not be farther from the truth.
0: Well, and see, when you put it that way, yes, it does. There is times when I'm reading this and I'm like, well, hell, I mean, me and you had this argument about I think it was Rodney a couple of weeks ago when you actually yeah. m- emailed me that night and told me we were going to have this uh, have this episode, because I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, hell, if it's possible that it could, you know, why the hell not give it to him? Which I still, you know, hey, if it could possibly mean the difference between letting a potentially convicted man that is incorrectly, you know, incorrectly incarcerated go, then I think that, yeah, why why the hell not?
1: But Part of the problem with that is that the courts, and, and we'll get into this a little bit, a little bit more later uh, mm-hmm. when we talk about some of the specific cases, but just as a general, just to clear up a misconception, the courts are not going to look at uh, say, Rod- – we'll just use Rodney Reed as an example – they're not going to just uh-huh. look at the information presented by Reed in support of his request and leave uh-huh. it at that and then grant the testing that he wants. What it involves, and it's in, it's in every state in the federal jurisdiction, not just Texas,
2: uh-huh. you look;
1: the judges look at the evidence as a whole. The new information and the evidence at trial, and, you know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors of claiming that all the evidence at trial has been uh, debunked, refuted, uh, destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, until a court declares that to be the case, that trial evidence stands. It stood in direct appeal. It stands in any post-conviction claim.
0: So, Lisa, I then have to ask you, though, has there ever been a denial where somebody could reasonably go up to a judge? Let's say I killed Joe Blow down the street, and I said, judge, I guarantee you this piece of evidence can acquit me, and it's because – You know, I don't smoke Marlboro cigarettes or whatever. You know, we'll just go with cigarettes or something. I don't know. But has there ever been something where they could literally? Is the judge looking at this and saying, "Well, I know it could acquit him, but who cares? I'm going to throw it out." Like people like to paint the picture.
1: Well, let's look at uh, let's look at Larry Swearingen. The DNA testing which was agreed to outside of Chapter 64 in Mm -hmm. 2017. And the results, one of the things that the Swearingen wanted tested were cigarette butts found on the ground near Melissa's body. Mm -hmm. The DA knew, and it may have even been of record, that those cigarettes, the hunters who found her body, said, those are our cigarettes. Right. But Swearingham, one of them tested, so they tested them. The DNA on those cigarette butts came back to the hunters who found Melissa's body. They were not related to the crime. They did not identify Anthony Shore or some serial killer, known or unknown. They belonged to the people who found Melissa's body because while waiting for police... To respond to that scene, the guy smoked. They lit up, they lit up some smokes. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know, yeah, but, but but you know, if the if you're if you're talking about a cigarette butt that could have been there for days, a cigarette butt that could have been tossed ten minutes before you and the victim got to the scene, it's going to depend.
0: So then, no. Basically, what I'm asking is, but did the okay, victim say, did the
1: victim smoke? Did the victim smoke that right. brand? And there are, I have seen cases where defendants tried to do that. I do that. They say I don't smoke or I don't smoke that brand, and then the DNA comes back to the victim.
0: Let's go O.J. for example, then. O.J., all the blood evidence was there. Let's say O.J., let's say part of the blood that they found didn't belong to O.J. We'll say that part of the blood belonged to some unknown person. If O.J. went to the trial judge and said, hey, trial judge, I want this to be You're, you're also, okay, wait,
1: wait, off. wait, call, call, hold off, hold off. You're also confusing two, two separate things. What you do at trial, and, you know, if there's, especially in this day and age, if there's evidence that's been collected, and the state hasn't tested it, and you have a DNA expert of your own, then you request the state test it, and you request samples for your expert to test. That was done in Rodney Reed's case with the beer cans. Okay, that's at trial, but once you've been convicted now, had OJ been convicted Uh and then wanted to get, but see OJ, again, whether or not you get DNA case testing depends upon the strength of the case already against you at
2: trial.
0: Well, and maybe that's maybe I'm doing a crappy example, of, a crappy job of giving examples. But basically, what I'm asking is, has a judge ever given a given a no go to testing any DNA that could potentially, and we're talking a good seventy-five to ninety percent chance, get somebody acquitted?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, that happens because basically the uh, exculpatory results on that DNA testing would not change the outcome of the case, but we're going to get into that. Okay. You're, you're, you're putting the cart a little bit ahead of the horse.
0: Okay. My bad.
1: Okay. All right.
0: So let's start.
1: I know. I know. Let's start. Um, the first comment, general comment that I can make is that all of these statutes, whether it's a Southern state, a death penalty state, or a progressive state like California and New York, most of these uh-huh. these statutes are remarkably similar. Mhm.
0: Uh-huh. There I mean, may we be see remarkably similar stuff from state to state. Period. Except, you know, right. Death. Correct.
1: Um, some states break it into multiple pieces
0: mm-hmm.
1: and some states handle it in one huge piece. Um, so okay. the first and we're going to go with the federal system as well uh, because there's something very important about the federal system. Um, in the federal system Post-conviction DNA testing is governed by 18 U.S.C. Section 3600, and this was referred to as the Innocence Protection Act of 2004. It was uh, became effective in October of 2004, and it has been amended and changed. Um, slightly in 2016, but not too substantive. Just some minor, um, minor style and and language changes. Um, okay. It governs anyone convicted of a federal offense can request, file a written motion requested requesting post-conviction DNA testing. And the testing will be ordered by the court or shall be ordered by the court if the court finds all of the following apply. And this is another factor in, in post-conviction DNA testing. You have to have yes to a series of questions. If you have a single question And the answer is no, then you're not entitled to DNA testing. Okay. So in the federal system, the first requirement is that the applicant assert under penalty of perjury that he or she is actually innocent of either the federal offense that they've been convicted of and sentenced to imprisonment or death for, or – Another federal or state offense that was used in sentencing. If they are applying for DNA testing to, uh, to mitigate a, a sentence, of, a prior conviction used in sentencing, they have to show that there is no adequate remedy under state law to permit DNA testing of the evidence. In that case, or to the extent available that they've exhausted all remedies available under state law, if it's a state case requesting DNA testing, Um, they also have to show that the evidence to be tested was secured in relation to the investigation or prosecution of the federal or state offense. And that the specific evidence was not previously subjected to DNA testing and that the applicant did not knowingly fail to request DNA testing of that evidence in a prior motion for DNA testing. Uh Or that requesting DNA testing, they're requesting DNA testing using a new method or technology that's substantially more probative than the prior DNA testing. They also have to show that the specific evidence has been in the possession of the government, subject to a chain of custody, and retained under conditions sufficient to ensure that the evidence has not been substituted, contaminated, tampered with, replaced, or altered in any respect material to the proposed DNA testing. And this is where you sometimes run into issues, we, we saw it in the Reed case, where you want to subject evidence to touch DNA testing. But Uh evidence-handling procedure in the 1990s did not anticipate the advent of touch DNA testing. And so once evidence was processed, the use of gloves was something that was not done. Right. Or not routinely done. And where evidence was stored, like all the paper evidence in the case was stored in a single manila envelope together. Uh And, you know, some of the physical evidence was stored in a box together. And where it had been handled by the jurors, by the attorneys, by the court clerk, by the court reporter, and nobody wore gloves. Right. So, um, and that's, you know, that's where it's not, it wasn't a deliberate contamination. It was an inadvertent contamination. As a result of evidence handling techniques being more lax than they are today.
2: Uh
1: And then the next next, uh, hurdle is that the proposed DNA testing is reasonable in scope, uses scientifically sound methods, and is consistent with accepted forensic practices. So that if you have like Kathleen Zellner requesting the Burned bones being subjected to this uh, testing by uh, somebody who used this method to identify nine one one victims, but it's not a method that's widely used. It's not one that's been subjected to quality and and uh, quality control, so to speak. It hasn't been verified. You know it's being it's been used and successfully identified burned remains, but using it in a court of law to either overturn or affirm a conviction is a different standard, okay. And then the next thing is that the applicant identifies a theory of defense that is not inconsistent with an affirmative defense presented at trial or would establish the actual innocence of the applicant of the federal or state offense referenced in the applicant's assertion under paragraph one. Now, a defense, say, in at trial, you claim self-defense, so you admit that you caused the victim's death but you say that you were defending your own you were defending your life right well now coming forward and saying I want DNA testing because I didn't kill him I'm actually innocent is not gonna is, is inconsistent with the defense of self defense
0: yeah makes no damn sense
1: so and then seven is that the uh, identity was an issue at trial. Most courts, even in a case where there's self-defense claim, will pretty much allow, most judges will say, okay, well, I'll I'll just go ahead and say, yeah, it was an issue at trial, even if it wasn't. Um, And that the proposed DNA testing would produce or may produce new material evidence that would support the theory of defense or raise unreasonable propaganda probability that the applicant did not commit the offense, commit the offense. Um, the applicant's also required to certify that they'll provide a DNA sample for purposes of comparison. And I've seen in two cases, uh, Eccles Baldwin and Ms. Kelly, there was a delay between their request and the court ordering DNA testing and any of them providing any reference samples. And Rodney Reed, he they had agreed testing in January, but he didn't provide a reference sample until July. So there was like right. a six month month delay. So um and then that the motions made in a timely fashion, subject to following conditions. And this one, I'm not gonna go into the 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 timing portions of the statutes. Uh, but in some statutes, if your conviction is after this act came into effect, then you have thirty-six months from when your conviction becomes final to request DNA testing. If it was
2: okay.
1: prior to two thousand four, you have sixty months. Mu- you had sixty months from the enactment of the Justice For All Act, and we saw. Uh, Jeffrey McDonald tried to get uh, additional DNA testing when the DNA testing that he got was inconclusive, and he wanted more evidence DNA tested, and he tried to file under this, and he was like five years out of out of <laughs> out of uh, the statute because. He filed. This became. uh, This became. This was 2004, and he didn't file his request under the Innocence Protection Act until 2011. Uh huh. So, um, all right. So that's pretty much that. Those are the requirements. And like I said, you have to. You have to have a yes. Right. to each of these questions. And um, mm-hmm. if if a court finds a no and, you know, there's a problem if you're wanting to test um, you know, in, in Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly who also, their DNA testing was actually outside the statute. Okay. It was not it, it was it was agreed to by the prosecutor and, or the the attorney general and Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly's attorneys, outside of the Arkansas statute. Okay. So um, we have a federal case, United States versus Fields where uh, Fields was convicted of murder in a jury trial in federal district court and sentenced to death. He uh, had committed some carjacking and um, the evidence against him, he represented himself at trial. And his defense was that someone else killed the victim, not him. And... um, so he was convicted and his conviction was upheld on direct appeal. He filed a federal habeas petition. He later sought, um, this was part of his, he sought DNA testing. He also um, actually filed an ineffective assistance of counsel claim against himself. Okay. Um, which was kind of funny when I read it. Um, I'm trying to get to the the DNA testing portion of the opinion. Um, I think he had, you know, he had like standby, um, uh, you know, standby advisory council. Right. But uh, he represented himself. And so on, you know, whatever he did, he can't, he can't. He can't claim he's ineffective because <laughs> he made the choice to represent yourself. You know. Right. Um, and I'm trying to find where he requested DNA testing and what he requested DNA on. Because um, this is the, like I said, this is the federal habeas. Uh, petition. Ah, here it is. Okay. Um, basically, he, the district court found that he fa- she, Fields failed to show how any new DNA or forensic evidence testing would constitute direct evidence of his innocence. So basically, the, the district court, looking at the evidence of Fields' guilt presented at the trial, did not see how any forensic evidence or DNA evidence would exonerate him. Right. Um, He wanted to test some of the victim's clothing and – There had been some DNA testing done at the time of his trial or, you know, prior – leading up to prior to his trial. Um, he wanted to do additional DNA testing because he he felt like there would be – there was no I, – I don't think there was any DNA originally, but um, uh, it doesn't look like there was any DNA because there was nothing tying him to the murder. But again, he was just speculating. And that's another thing that we see uh, occasionally is that they kind of speculate what the results will be and what they'll mean and what they would mean to a jury. But, you know, sometimes you have a case where at the time of trial, a jury knew that there were unknown fingerprints found at the crime scene. Or that there was unknown DNA in Melissa Trotter's case. The jury knew that there was unknown DNA recovered from fingernail scrapings of one of her hands. Right. Not, unco- not under her fingernails. But it, when the fingernail scrapings were examined, at some point – Unknown DNA was found, and the jury knew that it did not belong to swearingen and didn't knew that nobody knew who it belonged to and they didn't find that sufficient to uh, acquit him, and so he was convicted and sentenced to death because that's the other question: but. Would a reasonable jury convict? In light of the new evidence with all the old evidence, and that's where, again, a lot of times the court of public opinion does a disservice to the public because they paint a strong and compelling case for innocence ad nauseum and ignore evidence in the record from the trial that is equally compelling. They kind of dismiss it all as well this this disproves that and that disproves that and this you know or it's it was all circumstantial, it was circumstantial. But sometimes it's strong circumstances. Swanigan yeah. was strong circumstances. And multiple strong circumstances. Right. So um so that's the federal basically the federal uh the federal system and a lot of states including Arkansas modeled their either modeled their statutes after the federal system. Arkansas actually had a statute prior to the federal statute but they apparently revised their statute or amended their statute to model the federal statute and right. so uh DNA testing in Arkansas is governed by Arkansas code 16-112-202 et SEC. That means Arkansas broke up their statute into multiple interrelated statutes. So 202 covers the form of the motion, and this is what you have to put into the motion in order to be uh, in order to get DNA testing. Um, First of all, you cannot request DNA testing uh, while direct appeal is available. So you can't get convicted and go to the county jail, and while you're waiting for sentencing, scribble a motion to get DNA testing done.
0: What if it could could directly affect the outcome of said – Right to be but
1: again, Michael, the thing is you can't lay behind a log, okay? If you are in trial for a burglary or a robbery or a murder that you did not commit, you can't lay behind a log and let the state present their case and say, oh, oh, well and then say, okay, now I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Prior to trial, pre-trial, you, there are things you could do. You can investigate or have an investor, investigator investigate or your attorney can investigate. And you know, it's not the police's responsibility to provide you with an alibi or to provide you with alibi witnesses. If witnesses that they speak to Say they they were with you or you have an alibi. They are required by Brady to turn that over to your attorneys, but you need to be providing that information to your attorneys. Right. Okay? Um, you know, you don't, you don't lay behind a log and let your attorney, you know, fly and flounder and do whatever he's going to do and – wait for the police to provide you all the information that you need for your defense. It's not how it works. If, if DNA testing can, can prove that you didn't commit the crime, you should ask for it to be done prior to your trial, even commencing.
0: I see your point. I mean, and let it be
1: presented at trial. And then maybe if it's presented at trial, the jury might not convict you, depending. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you're on videotape committing whatever the crime happens to be and you give a good old look at the camera, it's not going to matter that your DNA is not anywhere to be found at the crime scene.
0: And I think, I think that's something. But what if it's a situation where, oh shit, I forgot to tell my attorney about this? I hate to say that, you know, in something that important, it would slip somebody's mind, but, you know.
2: That's, <laughs> it,
1: that's too bad. So sad. Okay. It, it, if you forget to tell your attorneys then, you know, that's on you. You have to communicate with your counsel.
0: Uh Uh-huh. But would there be a way later on for that to be, you know, we could you go to, not saying the judge, but, you know, could you go to whoever and be like, oh, shit, I forgot to tell you this and this happened, you know, and, you know, there's this DNA. Again,
1: no. And there's no, there is no reason... Under God's green earth, it 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 would not be fair to the state and the citizens of the state for somebody to be convicted and then go to a judge and say, "Your Honor, uh, there's a bunch of stuff I just forgot I just plum forgot to tell my attorney. I want a do-over."
0: Well, I'm not saying that, and I'm going to tell
1: I'm my attorney no. this information. No,
0: reasonably. Reasonably, if you but, that like, is, hey,
1: but no, because it's not reasonable for a person not to communicate with their counsel. How And I would? It's it's I would agree it's not reasonable. Huh? I would
0: agree. I would agree to a certain extent, but what if it is that one thing that you know? Hey, this is going to prove. If I it was to mention this, but this right here is going to prove it.
1: No, if you forgot to mention it, it couldn't have been that important and it can't be that definitive or that conclusive because otherwise you wouldn't have forgotten to tell your attorney.
0: True, true, good point, well played.
1: Um, you know, I mean, it, but again, it's like it, that's uh, the, the fault on you, yeah. It's not on the state, it's not on the prosecutor, it's not on the police. It's not even on your attorney. Uh Although I've seen people say, my attorney never asked me about this, so I never told him. And I've seen the courts say, well, (laughs) you must not have thought it was important, or you would have told them without being asked. Hmm. You know, I mean, that's just. Um, I've seen it. I mean, I've seen. I have seen, in Eccles Baldwin Miss Kelly, um, the attorneys for Baldwin actually alleged a Brady violation related to the lake knife. That the West Memphis PD did not provide Baldwin's attorneys with information from Sammy Dwyer that the knife had been in a lake six months before the murders. That was their conclusory allegation in their pleadings. That was the story they were telling in their media articles. But when we get down to the hearings and little Sammy Dwyer testifies, it turns out. The late knife came to be in the lake because Baldwin's mother, either Baldwin's mother threw it in there in front of Baldwin, which really pissed him off, or Baldwin accidentally dropped it in there. Or Baldwin got mad at his mother and threw it in the lake because she was bitching about his knife collection. Right. Each and every one of those things makes it not a Brady violation. Because that was information equally available to Baldwin that he should have told his attorneys. But to this day, I still see supporters saying, and they didn't tell Baldwin's attorneys about the lake knife being in the lake. It's like they tell a part of the story. They don't tell the whole story. Right. So, um, but no, I mean, if it's something you knew, you should have told your attorneys. And if you didn't tell them, it must not have been, you must not have attached that much importance to it. So, um, like I said, Arkansas pretty much mirrors the Uh, or or follows the federal statute, Um, they can make a motion for uh, fingerprinting, DNA testing, or other testing, which may become available through advances in technology to demonstrate actual innocence if the evidence was secured as a result of the conviction of the offense being challenged under 201, which is another part of the statute. Uh, specific evidence to be tested was not previously subjected to testing and the person making the motion under this section did not knowingly and voluntarily waive the right to request testing of the evidence in a court proceeding commenced on or after August 12, 2005 or knowingly failed to request testing of the evidence in a prior motion for post-conviction testing. And that's to kind of handle a case where a person files a motion for post conviction testing, like Jeffrey McDonald, oh. and they agree to testing of certain things, or he's granted testing of the cert- of the specific things he asked for in the motion. The results are inconclusive, and one of the results is inculpatory. Oops. And so then they file another request for DNA testing to test evidence that they didn't test before. Perhaps they, they chose not to test evidence that was believed to have victim blood on it because they didn't want to confirm it was a victim's blood. So, but now, you know, they want to throw caution to the wind and hope to God that there's an unknown DNA profile somewhere on something. That, so they can say, see, look, it's unknown DNA. I'm innocent. And unknown DNA does not always mean innocent. Right. So um, so that's, you know, to prevent repetitive, uh, you know, request five pieces of evidence be tested, testing is inconclusive, or a result is inculpatory, and then request testing of more evidence, five more pieces until you test all 20 pieces of evidence in connection with the crime. Um, True. That uh, the specific evidence was previously subjected to testing, uh, but that the person making the motion requested testing uh, uses a new method or technology that is substantially more probative than prior testing, and that would be like, um, you know, PCR, RFLP, polymarker, HLA-DQ alpha, early, early forms of DNA testing, to ask for STR testing to be done.
2: Right.
1: Um, where they can use smaller quantities of material, they can look at more. Uh, more alleles on the DNA, and, you know, they can get even more probative results. Uh, or in a case where uh, testing was done, but it was mixtures that couldn't be interpreted at the time, but now, you know, there's a there are different methods available now for Interpreting mixtures, so maybe get mixtures interpreted. Um, the specific evidence to be tested is in the possession of the state and has been subject to a chain of custody and retained under conditions sufficient to ensure that the evidence has not been substituted, contaminated, tampered with, replaced, or altered in any respect material to the pro testing. And that is... Um, for example, the what was it, the knives that were stolen from Terry Hobbs mm-hmm. and given to Dan Stidham. Well, they could not get a court to order DNA testing of those knives. Right. Because the knives were not in the custody of the uh, state and have not been subject to a chain of custody and retained under conditions sufficient to ensure uh their uh what do you call it provenance, so to speak. Right. Um, although I'm sure, you know, Dan Stidham would swear up and down that he didn't do anything to them. Uh <laughs> the proposed testing is reasonable in scope, uses scientifically sound methods, and is consistent with accepted forensic practices. Um, and also the same thing, you can't if – you, if you claim self-defense at trial in a murder case, you can't now come back and say, I didn't kill the person, I wasn't there, and you know my absence of my DNA at the scene will prove it.
2: Right.
1: Um, and same of established actual innocence, and the identity of perpetrator was at issue. And then um, the testing may produce new material evidence that would support the theory of defense or raise a reasonable probability uh, that the person making the motion would, uh, did not commit the offense. Uh, again, the person has to certify that they'll provide DNA as a reference or whatever testing they want. They have to provide a reference for comparison.
2: Um, uh-huh. The
1: motion is made timely. And that is within 36 months of the date of conviction. The only exception is if the person was incompetent and the incompetence led to a delay in seeking testing, then that's an a, uh, um, exception to the 36-month rule.
2: Right. And
1: uh, the motion is not based solely upon the person's own assertion of innocence, and a denial of the motion will result in manifest injustice. So um, that is the first part, which is what you have to do in the motion, and the contents of the motion uh, is basically that – a statement of facts and the grounds upon which the petition and relief desired are based. Um, the grounds for relief have to be stated in the petition and any the amendments. Uh, there may be argument and citation in the p- c- citation of authorities in the petition. Um, you have to identify the proceedings in which the petitioner was convicted, including the date of entry of conviction and sentence or other disposition. Uh, identify any previous proceedings, so direct appeal or uh, state post-conviction claims, uh, the name of the attorneys, and then it has to be verified by either the petitioner or signed by the petitioner's attorney. Uh, It has to be filed in the court in which the conviction was entered, and then the uh, state gets a chance to respond, and the state can, in its response, lay out all the evidence of guilt at trial, and the state can argue that that you know, guilt would not be, um, a reasonable jury would still convict even with an exculpatory DNA result. Um, the court can grant a hearing in Arkansas under 205, but it doesn't have to. If the petition and the files and records of the proceeding show that the petitioner is entitled to no relief, … then the court to just deny relief without a hearing. Uh, if there's a question, the court can hold a hearing. Right. Um, and um, the court can receive evidence in the form of affidavit, deposition, or oral testimony. And then also, 205 provides that a second or successive petition for same or similar relief on behalf of the same petitioner may summarily be denied if any of the issues have previously been decided by the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court in the same case. And then Uh 206 provides for an appeal to the um, appellate court or the state Supreme Court Either a, an attorney uh, – the, the petitioner can appeal if testing is denied, and the prosecutor or attorney general can appeal if the petition is granted. Okay. And then uh, Arkansas also uh, has 208, which governs testing procedures. Uh, Basically, the testing is generally done at the state crime laboratory. However, uh, testing can be ordered at another qualified laboratory as long as that laboratory is accredited by ASCLAD or National Forensic Forensic Science Technology Center. And then there's also uh costs of testing are also addressed in two oh eight. Right. But, but I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna go into all that. And then we have uh the case of Martin, uh Gary Martin versus State of Arkansas. Uh Mr. Martin was represented by Bryce Benjet of the Innocence Project. He was convicted of first-degree murder for the killing of Kimberly Burris and sentenced to life imprisonment. His conviction was affirmed on direct appeal, and in 2016, he requested a uh, filed a DNA testing request under 201, and that was denied by the trial court, and he appealed. Um uh-huh. The basic ground, the first was a presumption against timeliness. Uh, Basically, he waited too long after his conviction to file the request for DNA testing. And um, he was also seeking testing of hairs that uh, belonged to an accomplice who testified against him. Right. So basically he thought if – or basically Mr. Benjet believed that if the hair did not belong to the accomplice, then all the accomplice's testimony goes out the window, and my client is actually innocent. So – but they basically found that the request was not timely, Um, and I guess – because his conviction was was, – became final in 2001, and he didn't request DNA testing for like 15 years. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he should have requested testing as soon as the DNA statute went into effect. Um, the uh, Also, they, they found that the methods that were being requested were available at the time of his trial. And... Um, he just he he failed to make the showing that the methods available now were not available then and would not have been more probative um, than what was available then again and that's right. something else that, that people don't realize the burden of proof is not on the state to rebut an entitlement to dna testing the burden of proof is on the defendant seeking the testing To prove his entitlement, and um, so uh, the case was actually appealed to the Supreme Court of Arkansas. Uh-huh. And let's see. He filed a writ of error quorum nobis. But it looks like um the appeal to the supreme court was not related to the DNA testing. Mhm. Uh-huh. So um And I think the, the position that they took in the quorum nobis was that they were trying to get DNA testing of the hair because of problems with the trial testimony about the hair. So, um, so he may have gotten DNA testing of that hair. <laughs> right. After all, I don't know. I don't know if he did, though, because – Um. Because so, um, yeah, I I think he it was it was it was um, it was uh, returned to the the trial court, and I didn't see any other opinions since then. So um, they may have gotten the DNA testing, and it turned out to be. The hair turned out to belong to the accomplice who testified against him, and so um, that was the end because Innocence Project, when it's when DNA testing tends to uh, corroborate guilt or inculpate their client, they tend to slink away without reporting that that actually happened. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to go to Louisiana now, Um, and we're a little different. Our DNA testing statute is actually, looks like it is in a bit of flux right now. It's uh, Code of Criminal Procedure Article 926.1. And uh, there's a there's a note, this section is likely affected by new legislation, although the new codification has not yet been released, the likely impact of the new legislation is reflected below. So at the end of this long article is a bunch of things that may be changing uh, about the state of Louisiana because we have to be different. Um, uh. It's pretty much similar. It's it's you know again you have to answer yes to the questions. Um, in Louisiana, the request can be made uh, prior to August thirty first, twenty nineteen, or uh, if you were convicted prior to August fifteenth, two thousand and one. You can file the uh, request at any time. Convicted and sentenced to death prior to August 15, 2001. Uh, and the you have to allege a factual explanation of why there's an articula, articulable doubt based on competent evidence whether or not introduced at trial as to the guilt of the petitioner in that DNA testing will resolve the doubt and establish the innocence of the petitioner, the factual circumstances establishing the timeliness of the application, identify, uh, identification of particular evidence for which DNA testing is sought, that the applicant is factually innocent of the crime, uh, and it has to be an affidavit signed by the petitioner under penalty of perjury, and, um, the court shall dismiss any application filed pursuant to this article unless it finds all of the following that there's an articulable doubt and a reasonable likelihood that the requested DNA testing will resolve the doubt and establish the innocence of the petitioner. Uh, in uh-huh. making the finding, the court shall evaluate and consider the evidentiary importance of the DNA sample to be tested. Uh, That could be, you know, if it's a beer can found at the scene, but it appears like it was there for weeks before the murder even occurred, uh, it's probably not going to have a lot of evidentiary importance because it likely isn't related to the murder. Um, Right. They have to find that the application was timely filed, that the evidence is is available and in a condition that will permit DNA testing. Um, and an interesting, an interesting thing we were talking about, Arkansas, uh, at one point in Arkansas, Eccles attorneys were seeking DNA testing on stomach contents from the boys. Right. Without ever making a showing that the stomach contents were actually collected and maintained and preserved.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: Um, Relief shall not be granted when the court finds that there's a substantial question as to the integrity of the evidence to be tested. So if the petitioner's mama brought a bloody knife to the police and they didn't think that it was exactly kosher, They put it in an evidence bag, and they took it from her um, you know they that would that would kind of be questionable evidence right or uh so uh And the relief shall not be granted solely because there is evidence currently available for DNA testing, but the testing was not available. It was not done at the time of the conviction. And that's something I hear all the time. The evidence is there. Why won't the state test it? If the crime were investigated today, the evidence would be tested. Well, there's a conviction. And that conviction has been affirmed on direct appeal. The crime is not being investigated. And in fact, all doubt has been resolved against the petitioner.
2: Right.
1: Um, You're not going into this as an innocent person requesting testing. You're going into this convicted with the burden of proof to prove entitlement to testing and to prove that no reasonable jury having this evidence would have convicted you in the first place. Uh And it really does a disservice to ignore the evidence at trial in favor of Confessions of alternate suspects who are now dead, or um, statements from victims, or trashing the victim's character or morals, you know, implying that the victim did drugs, implying that the victim was a serial cheater or promiscuous woman. Oh. <clears throat> um, so, um, then, uh, if the court determines that, uh, another thing is, actually, no, when the application is filed, the court has to determine the location of evidence sought to be tested, and she'll serve a copy of the application on the district attorney and law enforcement agency which has possession of the evidence. If the court grants relief and orders testing, the court shall issue all such orders as are appropriate to obtain the necessary samples to be tested and to protect their integrity. Another um, interesting uh, aspect of, I think it's Louisiana, the uh, procedures require that a portion of the evidence be reserved for the district attorney or the attorney general to perform independent testing.
0: Okay.
1: And it also uh, it allows that the testing uh, – The testing be conducted at a laboratory mutually agreed upon by the district attorney and petitioner? If the parties can't agree, the court designates the laboratory. Uh, They have to be ASCLAD and um, lab accredited in uh, forensic DNA testing or forensic DNA analysis. Uh, Then it also requires if testing is ordered that the results are filed by the laboratory with the court and served upon the petitioner and the district attorney. And then the court may order production of underlying facts or data and laboratory notes. Uh, It also provides for preservation of evidence once an application is uh, uh, filed. Uh, Interestingly... Um, The federal statute and I think Arkansas statutes, if the petitioner files actual and says I'm actually innocent, and then the results of the DNA testing ordered are inculpatory, it means it's his DNA or her DNA. um, In the federal system and Arkansas, they can actually be charged with contempt of court. Hmm. And their DNA sample gets submitted to uh, the National DNA DNA Index System. CODIS is, I think, gone now, and it's the National DNA Index System to see if it hits on any other crimes. Uh, and if the results are exculpatory, and it's not their DNA, all the all the reference samples and are not maintained in the system and, and they're destroyed. And in Louisiana, the legislature has created a uh, DNA testing post-conviction relief for indigence fund.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: administered by the Louisiana Indif- indigent defense assistance board. Uh, it's segregated from all other funds and should, shall be used exclusively for the purposes established under the provisions of this article for DNA testing for indigent defendants, um, and then, like I said, it, it's a new House bill is going to come out. Um, I think the most significant change is it's going to extend the filing deadline from August thirty first, twenty nineteen, to August thirty first, twenty twenty four.
2: Mhm.
1: And um, after August 31st, 2024, they can request DNA testing under the rules for filing an application for post-conviction relief as provided in Article 930.4 and 930.8. So that's probably where the new DNA testing uh, provisions are going to go. And um, – we have uh, two Supreme Court of Louisiana cases, and the first one is Derek Todd Lee. He requested uh, – he filed post-convi- for post-conviction relief. It looks like he was doing this pro se, and he requested DNA testing even though his conviction – uh, was based on DNA testing, but he was challenging the reliability of the DNA evidence used against him and challenged the methodologies employed by the state's forensics analysts um, seeking an independent review of the DNA evidence used at his trial. Um and basically the Louisiana Supreme Court basically found that he failed to show relief was warranted. So he didn't right. look the the criteria. Um and, you know, and, and he was asking for something that that's not really what the act is meant to do. And then another one is Dante Carson, who also um sought post conviction relief and DNA testing um, that uh of certain evidence he his application for DNA testing was found to be deficient. The crime at issue was an attempted murder by shooting. Uh, the victim was shot in the foot. Petitioner was not identified by the victim or arrested for the shooting until over a month later. And the court failed to see what could be learned from DNA testing of the victim's DNA relative to the guilt or innocence of the petitioner. Hmm. So... Um, And this is why when you file an application, you have to meet certain guidelines. You have to meet certain criteria. You have to follow certain rules. Because otherwise you're going to have people saying, I'm actually innocent. You know, test his shoes and my DNA is not going to be there because I'm innocent. Well, of course your DNA is not going to be there because you shot him in the foot. You didn't pick up his foot. You just pointed the gun down at his foot and you shot him. You know. I I guess I think your touch DNA is gonna be on the bullet or something. Right. All right, you wanna take a quick break
2: yeah, before can we, we go on to
1: California?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Clear and Convincing. Uh, we'll be right back after this.
2: See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace Wurta, the original Misfit, Josh, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray, Ray. Insane Shane, and current AWO champion, D Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization.
1: we're back
0: yes ma'am
1: alrighty alright we're going to try and kind of power through these next ones this is California uh, basically all the same requirements as the other uh, statutes except the California statute does not provide for a right of to the appointment of counsel in a post-conviction collateral proceeding or set a precedent for any such right in any context other than representation being provided to an indigent convicted person for the limited purpose of filing and litigating a motion for DNA testing. So they will appoint an attorney for an indigent defendant, but they will not – uh that doesn't mean that they have to prov- provide counsel for all post-conviction claims. And it's kind of the same, uh, all the same things. You have to answer yes to any test, to, to any of the questions. You have to prove chain of custody and where... Again, defendants in any state are going to run into issues is where their convictions predate strict evidence-handling procedures that are currently in place today. So... And under the case, you still there, Michael?
0: Yes, ma'am, I'm still here. I just okay. heard you say you wanted the power turret, so I was letting you go.
1: <laughs> you, you get quiet, and I think I think blog talk hung up, hung up on me.
0: Hey, I take something um, cute as well.
1: Okay. So, um, so, the case is uh people versus anthony silva uh Silva was convicted of robbery and murder in November of twenty eleven um or maybe it was just robbery no yeah two counts of attempted murder um and he his conviction was affirmed on direct appeal. The request for DNA testing was made, and it doesn't look like. Oh no! This was a this was as an appeal on a failure to grant. Council and funds. So I didn't actually find a a case where DNA testing was denied. Oh, well, we're going to move on. (laughs) All right. Um, In New York, New York statutes are confusing as hell. Um, Oh, and that's governed by, by the way, California is – Hang on a second. California is uh, California Penal Section 1405 governs DNA testing. And New York, it's uh, confusing. It's governed by New York CPL Law 440.30, and it's actually under a motion to vacate judgment and set aside sentence procedure and this is uh, where the defendant's motion requests forensic DNA test on specified evidence Mm -hmm. they again have to show that the evidence was secured in connection with the trial Uh, the court shall grant the application upon its determination that if a DNA test had been conducted on such evidence And if the results have been admitted in the trial, resulting in the judgment, there exists a reasonable probability that the verdict would have been more favorable to the defendant. Uh, It also allows for DNA testing where uh, the defendant has pled guilty of a homicide or another felony offense. I guess you know if you're if you're if you're convicted of shoplifting and sentenced to a year times with time served, and you're not in jail, you may not be able to get it. Um, But it's pretty it's very confusing their law. (laughs) But again, the court isn't. Yeah, the court is not going to take just what the petitioner says and say, okay, yeah, you know, exculpatory DNA results would result in acquittal, so I'm gonna grant the testing. They're gonna take all of the um all the evidence at trial, as well as the new evidence being offered. Right. So um that's basically and the case we have is uh, Samuel Washpon versus uh-huh. New York State District Attorney of Kings County. Um, he, Samuel, was convicted of rape in the first degree on August twenty third, nineteen eighty five, based on a complaint filed by his cousin. Um, The uh, defendant was convicted. He filed motions to vacate in December of 1986, 88, and 90 of ineffective assa- uh, assistance of counsel and prosecutorial misrepresentations. Uh, he also filed several petitions in federal court for writs of habeas corpus. Um the defendant is requesting new discovery basically at a post conviction juncture and under new york law discovery in criminal proceedings is entirely governed by statute right um so you know basically he's uh He also waited too long because their stat- – New York statute was enacted in 1994. Okay. So uh, that was – this is basically interpreting the the new law. And I'm just looking for the bottom. So he, he had to go back and, and demonstrate that the evidence he wanted to test was still in existence.
2: And okay. that there's
1: sufficient material to conduct testing. And if he does that, then he could renew his motion. But he was going to have to renew his motion and his discovery request was denied. Okay. All right. So those are are very, you know, relatively California and New York are both relatively progressive states, but their statutes do not say if you ask for it, you get it. It still, you know, sets a bar. And, you know, there is a good reason for that. If the statute said ask ask and ye shall receive, then the courts would be inundated with requests for DNA testing from everybody currently incarcerated. And labs would be inundated with evidence to test. And in states where, you know, the primary tester is the state crime lab or county crime lab, then, you know, they would have nothing but post-conviction DNA testing to do. Uh-huh. And there would be no time to do DNA testing on current unsolved crimes.
0: Good point. And there's a so, lot of things um ahead. A lot of these statutes are they you know what has to do with basically caseload management?
1: In a way it's it it's in some ways caseload management, but what people forget or don't re- or fail to recognize or just don't care is that these are not. These are people who are, in the eyes of the court, guilty. Right. So there's a bar that you have to be able to get over in order to get testing. And it's for a good reason. Like I said, if it said, ask and you shall receive, then everybody would would get post-conviction DNA testing true and there there would be a potential to game the system and you get you know and you have people who would test two pieces of evidence and if it's inculpatory ask to test two more pieces and so on and so on or if it's inconclusive ask to test two more pieces and so on and so on so they're not only designed to prevent gaming the system And, you know, as we saw with Larry Swearingen, he had time on his hands, so he filed a lot of pro se motions outside what his counsel was already doing on his behalf. And, you know, if Hmm. you look at Texas, I've I've looked at, at, you know, dockets for cases – where a guy's got 30 writs, post-conviction writs, and they're all Mm -hmm. the same. Every time his request to review is denied by the Court of Criminal Appeals, he just files the same paperwork over and over and over again. And that's what would happen with DNA testing. So they have to set up rules and boundaries and uh, criteria that you have to meet,
0: yeah, in otherwise. order
1: to keep in order to keep it at and you know having one guy gaming the system when he's guilty and he knows he's guilty. Could hurt somebody who might be actually innocent, legitimately innocent,
2: hmm.
1: because he's he's not going to have access, or his request is going to be looked at as though it's just another one of these pain in the ass things. … that the courts have to deal with because the legislature did not put in adequate safeguards to prevent abuse and ensure that meritorious claims get the attention that they, they should get.
2: Right. Absolutely. So, I
1: agree. Um, so finally, we've got Texas, and again it's it's no different in spite of their um, their reputation as being big meanies
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> in the world. Um, you know you have to answer yes to all the questions, and they're substantially the same questions that are required under even progressive California statute. Right. And um, so basically, uh, you know, you can't go asking for – you can't ask for testing of evidence that doesn't exist. For example – Uh, In in Rodney Reed's case, Uh, fingernail scrapings. Well, her fingernails were cut very, very, very short. Um, There was no DNA. There was no material recovered from under those fingernails. So there are no fingernail scrapings. And there never were. You know, and that issue was brought up at trial. And sometimes it, it it's also sometimes, you know, they'll they'll ask to test stuff that they've known since trial did not exist. Like the stomach contents. In Westmont's three case. Right. So, um, and of course, when I pulled the uh, case where DNA testing was not granted, um, I went ahead and pulled Rodney Reed. Um, Basically, he was denied testing primarily because he wanted touch DNA testing on certain items. And it was found that those items had not been stored or maintained or handled in a way that would preserve any DNA uh, on them and ensure that you wouldn't get results that would just muddy the waters. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, you know, I mean, on let, let's say they, they worded you touch DNA testing on the belt on um, the name tag, on a napkin, on a pen, and they get the same unknown DNA profile on those items of evidence, that's not going to exonerate Rodney Reed. Because the belt, the name tag, the pen, the napkin were handled at trial by the jury, or could have been handled at trial by the jury. The Belt or the, the name tag, the napkin, and the pen were all stored in a box with other evidence like a videotape that was touched, and touch DNA can be transferred from object to object. Um, So, um, you know, you have to prove that the evidence you want to test has some provenance to the murder or or the, the crime. And again, it just, even aggregating the exculpatory results, you still can't, that's not going to exonerate him because his DNA was found in and on her body. And there is no reasonable explanation for that because he has time and time again failed to prove a relationship with Stacy. All of his witnesses, his witnesses at trial, were not believed. His witnesses in post-conviction were not believed.
2: His latest
1: witnesses in post-conviction – are not believable, because they all knew this at the time Reed was arrested and tried, and yet they did not come forward and provide yeah, they this just information. Sat on the
2: information
1: They just sat on the information, and then they come forward years later when they believe Jimmy Finnell's a real killer, and Rodney Reed is innocent, so. Um, the court, you know, the Court of Criminal Appeals held it to be entitled to Chapter 64 DNA testing of these items. Reed must show by a preponderance of the evidence a greater than 50 percent likelihood that we, he would not have been convicted if the proposed testing's exculpatory results were available at the time of trial.
0: Right. It makes literally zero sense for them to right yeah
1: and you know again claiming in the the defense claiming that they've undermined the state's Syria trial is again not persuasive because no court has found any of Reed's subsequent evidence to be persuasive or reliable or credible. So, you know, that is why DNA testing for him was denied. And as I said, I I don't think even finding an unknown DNA profile on the belt, you know, finding an unknown DNA profile on the belt is not going to help him. Even finding Fennell's DNA on the belt isn't going to help him because Fennell and Stacy live together.
2: Right.
1: So, you know, there are innocent explanations for his DNA to be on the belt. Um, But that's not going to – like I said, that's not going to exonerate him because his DNA was in and on her body, and additional testing found his DNA on her pants. Which places him with her body on the morning that she was murdered, because those are the pants she put on when she left her before she left her apartment that morning and on her back brace in the truck, which was abandoned six tenths of a mile from Reed's mother's house.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So he has already gotten testing outside chapter sixty four. And the results of that testing were not exculpatory. They were inculpatory. His DNA was found in two additional places that actually further inculpate him. So – and, you know, I don't, I'm I'm not going to talk about the uh, civil rights cases tonight. Um, we can table that for another time. Uh, and I'll, you know, get a better representative sample of some civil rights cases. And, of course, we've got Rodney Reed's got one that he just filed recently. So um, we'll look at swearing in and. Skinner and Osborne and a couple of others. Um, at some point down the road. Okay. Um, you good. played and you played Twilight Zone and I flash back to Edward Edwards.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> we um, we are Michael and I are going to record a conclusion that wraps up those last seven alleged wrong con- wrongful conviction cases. Um, That was kind of sort of planned to be this weekend, but it didn't happen. Um, Of course, I had my interview with uh, Kelly Blackburn, and I'm immensely Uh proud of myself that I ran the board without Michael.
0: And you did such a fabulous job.
1: And I was really impressed with myself because I didn't accidentally hang up on him. I didn't accidentally (laughs) mute him at any time during the show. Of course, if you listen to the show, um, I didn't want to take up too much of his time. So when he and I got to about the hour and we had sort of gone through everything that I wanted to talk to him about, I thought, okay, let's let this gentleman begin his Labor Day weekend.
2: <laughs> right,
1: right. So, um I let I let him go. So, we will do that um maybe next weekend.
0: Okay.
1: Or the weekend after that, we may do uh-huh. it on a uh bonus one night during the week. Okay. And do a bonus live episode.
2: Okay, definitely.
1: But we'll, well, Michael and I will put our, our little uh, pinheads together and figure something out. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: <laughs> and um, uh, what I do want to touch on, though, really briefly is whenever you look at DNA testing, the case that's always inevitably brought up is Michael Morton. And... um one of the things is that a misconception is that all cases are the same. Always. If Michael Morton got DNA testing, then by God, Larry Swearingen and Rodney Reed and Damien Eccles and anybody else out there who says they're innocent should get DNA testing. Because look at this. Michael Morton really was. Um, First of all, I have to say, you know, Michael Morton found himself in the position he was in because, A, he was the victim's husband. B, the victim was found in their home, dead. Um, C, there was a uh, a history of marital discord in their relationship uh, that I think he, to an extent, downplayed. Um, and uh, essentially the only evidence that kind of didn't fit with Michael Morton as the killer is a bandana found about 100 yards away from the back of the Morton household. At the time, Mm -hmm. however – the bandana was tested and they could tell it had human blood on it, but that's all they could tell. They couldn't even type the blood at that time. Hmm. Um apparently the the existence of the bandana was disclosed. But like I said, they could only tell it was human blood. They couldn't type it, they couldn't they couldn't link it to Christine Morton, they couldn't link it to anyone else. So, it would not have helped Morton at his trial anyway. Um, there was some evidence withheld from uh, Morton's defense attorneys. And that was basically um, statements about a strange van in the neighborhood, Um and a couple of other things nothing there was no no hiding of forensic evidence. you know there were no fingerprints in the house that didn't belong to Michael Morton or Christine Morton or the son uh, or family members of the Mortons or anything of that nature. Um, but it was it was information that could have led to at least an argument that there was an unknown perpetrator out there, but nothing that specifically identified the person who DNA identified as Bruce Allen Norwood. And that was done Mm -hmm. when DNA testing was granted to Morton in 2010. Um, So, you know, Michael Morton was the logical suspect, um he was the usual suspect and under the circumstances it wasn't he wasn't an unreasonable suspect so um uh, but he did have DNA testing granted in 2010 and he um uh it identified blood from Christine and DNA from an unknown perpetrator, which when submitted to CODIS hit on Bruce uh, Norwood. Right. Um. And so Morton was exonerated in 2011. Okay. Um. But uh, that is, and the the. What exactly was withheld is only available in articles because apparently the um, exoneration occurred without any court proceedings or appellate opinions being issued that would exactly detail what was withheld and what wasn't. Um, Interestingly enough, in 2010, Morton did seek to perform DNA testing on a murder that occurred after Christine's murder, Uh but the court found that he could could test the bandana from his case, but he was not entitled to testing of uh, evidence in another case that was not his. And had, and had not been secured in relation to his conviction. So, um, And there's also – I've seen a lot of claims on uh, Twitter uh, in relation to Rodney Reed and the, the denial of DNA testing requests for him. Um, apparently, Bastrop County is using DNA to identify the victim of an unsolved murder that goes back about 40 years, 35, 40 years. Right. And, of course, it's been said, well, they're using this, they're using DNA testing in that case. Why can't they use it in Rodney Reed's case? And Mm -hmm. those are two separate things. They're apples and oranges. Rodney Reed's case is a conviction that's been upheld on direct appeal where he has failed to meet the criteria of Chapter 64 DNA testing statute in Texas. The other – the case that they're going to use the DNA for – on, in, from is to identify a victim in a murder case and then use the identity of that victim – to try to investigate and find the perpetrator of that murder. Oh, uh-huh. they're totally totally different things. <clears throat> you know, it if they're lucky, something that they test from the case will reveal the identity of the perpetrator. And I hope that that happens so that it's very quick and easy for them to identify the perpetrator of that murder. But their goal is more to try and find out who their victim is in order to be able to find out who killed her and why. Right. So... um, so that is, you know, that's kind of the post conviction DNA testing in a nutshell. <laughs> and hmm. you know, most states the statutes have the same requirements. You have to meet the same bar um or similar bar to uh get testing. It's not a right. Um and it's it's not really <clears throat> You know your the case is once you've been convicted, your case is no longer in the investigatory stage. It's in a post conviction challenge to your incarceration stage right so, um so that is basically. That's post-conviction DNA testing.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Now, any questions?
0: Not really. I mean, it's pretty concise. I I, I really understand what you guys are talking about now uh, as far as why certain things are denied and everything. It really honestly cleared up a lot of the questions I had.
1: Right. Okay. Well, that's good that's good and you know again everything that's the interesting thing is that criminal cases are not cookie cutter one size fits all every case is a case by case basis and so you know what, what what applies to one case doesn't necessarily apply to another uh-huh. But you know Michael Morton got DNA testing because he was able to meet all the criteria of chapter sixty four and it was actually a more a more daunting version of chapter sixty four because chapter sixty four the current version i believe uh was uh amended in twenty eleven And it Uh took out some of the more difficult requirements, like if DNA testing was available at all during your trial, and you didn't ask for evidence to be tested, you could not get testing of anything. Dang. Um. So, it's been amended, and you know another another problem with Rodney Reed and his attorneys can argue until they're blue in the face that they're not doing any of this stuff to to delay, but when chapter sixty four is there and it's available in twenty eleven and you wait until the state requests an execution date to file a request for DNA testing in twenty fourteen it looks like you're trying to delay the execution of your sentence.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, now they argue. Well, we had this going. We had that going. DNA testing is outside of state post conviction. It's outside of federal post conviction. Federal habeas corpus. You can have. You can file a request for state DNA testing, and still have other post conviction motions going. Right. So, you know. It's not. Um, it's not. It doesn't. No. No. No statute says if you have a pending post conviction motion, you can't file a request for DNA testing. Uh huh. And some of these statutes actually have limitations. The federal statute, which does not apply to state cases, and that's another thing we're gonna um, we're gonna look at with Osborne. And I think Skinner tried to use it. Um, that some state defendants have filed in federal court under the the Innocence Protection Act to try and obtain DNA testing in their state cases. And so we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But that'll be a a, a down the road kind of thing too. Okay. And of course, I'll also keep my eye out on anything, any new developments, any any other cases. It's gotten quiet.
0: Right, it really has. Even surprisingly, so. Rodney's gotten quiet.
1: Well, his uh, the um, I did forget to put that on there. It's not really significant. The civil rights suit has been served
2: uh-huh. on
1: the various defendants. Uh, the pro- the district attorney for Bastrop County, the prison director, I think the attorney general and somebody else. I'll I'll get that in the future. Um, but right. anyway it has been served and um their answers are due September 17th and September 18th around that time my prediction is that they're actually going to file a motion to dismiss
2: uh-huh
1: and if the court denies the motion to dismiss they'll answer and then they'll file a motion for summary judgment because Larry Swearingen filed a similar claim in 2016, and that was dismissed on summary judgment in 2017. Basically, the huh. failure to state a claim upon, because the federal court cannot tell the state court to do DNA testing. It can't tell the district attorney to do DNA testing. Right. It can't tell the clerk of court to do DNA testing. It can't order them to give the evidence to Rodney Reed to DNA test. Uh Mm-hmm. Because it has no jurisdiction over them to force them to do anything or order them to do anything, so i have a I have a feeling whether that will happen prior to November twentieth. I don't know right um, the action swearing and filed in i think September of twenty sixteen and it wasn't dismissed until June of twenty seven uh July, excuse me, of twenty seventeen. Okay. So it that may take some time. It may result in a stay of execution. Uh, but I, I expect that once it's dismissed um and the Fifth Circuit disposes of it, then they'll file another request for an execution date. Okay. <clears throat> but I don't know. It it depends on the docket for this particular federal judge. Mm-hmm. And it's the same judge who handled Rodney Reed's um, federal habeas claim. Okay. So he's already familiar with the record and the evidence against Reed. Right. So, we will, uh, we're going to, um, look at Rodney Reed on November 19th. Okay. So, we'll, we'll look at the, any, and all the post-conviction, uh, process since the last show that we did.
0: Sounds like a plan.
1: Alright. Well, are you ready to put a bow on this one?
0: Let's do it.
1: Alright. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, You can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week on Monday, September 9th, 2019, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central, for Episode 29, our 911 Memorials episode. Michael and I will talk about the events of September 11th, 2001, and their aftermath, We'll also talk about the individuals suspected of involvement in the planning of and preparation for the attacks and the status of prosecution of those individuals. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.